Is all brain injury created equally? Does the insult from a stroke result in the same damage as traumatic brain injury? Should treatment differ? Welcome to our special series on future medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donald Stein. Dr. Stein is a neuroscientist and Asa G. Candler Professor of Emergency Medicine at Emory University. Before returning to full-time research and training, he served in a variety of administrative positions, including Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, Vice Provost for Graduate Studies, and Vice President for Research at Emory University. Dr. Stein's research has long focused upon examining the processes underlying recovery of function after traumatic brain injury. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Leslie. I'm very happy to be here. Now, Dr. Stein, tell us about the differences between damage from stroke, say, to traumatic brain injury. You know, that's a very complex uh, question, actually. There are more similarities than there are differences between TBI and stroke because it depends on, obviously, the initial uh, injury to the brain is very, very different. In a traumatic brain injury, it could be either closed head, it could be penetrating injury, let's say from a bullet wound or a sharp object. It could be damage due to a blast, such as the troops in Iraq are experiencing. So with a traumatic brain injury, it's actually, it can be more severe. Obviously, it depends on so many other physical factors. But if we're talking about, let's say, a relatively substantial injury, one of the things that happens in a traumatic brain injury, for example, that doesn't happen in stroke, is that if you bang up against the windshield of your car, for example, or playing football and come up against another helmet, several things are going to happen. First of all, in that condition, unlike stroke, the brain is going to be bouncing back and forth in the skull cavity. That's called contra-coup injury, and it could go from front to back, left to right, or a combination of all of those factors, depending upon how severe the initial physical force is. In addition to that, when you get a traumatic brain injury, even a penetrating brain injury, which, which puts, let's say, due to a projectile like a bullet, it's creating a suction behind it. So it's going to be doing a tremendous amount of, of much more diffuse injury. Sometimes when you have a blow to the head or a penetrating injury, the axons of nerve cells are going to be tremendously stretched. And uh, that injury is called diffuse axonal injury or shearing injury. None of these occur in a stroke. A stroke is typically more focalized, and it depends, again, on the type of stroke. If it's an ischemic stroke where you get basically the shutdown of a blood vessel for a fixed period of time or even a permanent occlusion, um, you're not going to get any of those shearing forces. You're not going to get any of those tearing forces. You're not going to get any of the penetrating destruction as, as a missile passes through and does a lot of uh, subsidiary da damage. So you're going to get the area in a stroke that's going to die, of, the cells are going to die as a result of losing their blood supply. In addition, in a traumatic brain injury, you're going to get a loss of blood supply. You're also going to get a lot of bleeding, which causes additional cell death. So the injury typically is much, much more extensive. But even, even with a stroke, even if it's relatively focalized, a lot of changes are going to be taking place that are similar to a traumatic brain injury, you're going to get the production of what are called inflammatory factors or more technically inflammatory cytokines. You're going to get uh, swelling and edema as the tissue breaks down and becomes necrotic. You're going to get, again, more in the local area or in the area around the stroke called the penumbra, you're going to get something called apoptosis or apoptosis, which is a fancy term for programmed cell death where the certain genes get upregulated. Some people used to call them suicide genes, where the cell 
uh, gets programmed to die, and, and that death can take place within a short period of time, or it can begin to take place weeks or months after the initial injury. Those are common factors. So you're going to get, it's really, I could lecture on this for a long time, because you're going to get local injury at the site of the injury itself, but then a lot of degenerative changes are going to take place quite far removed. Many, as we would say in the field, many synapses removed from the actual site of the injury. Uh, neurons are going to be dying back. You're going to get scarring you, through uh, glial proliferation and migration into the wound area. So the point that I'm trying to make is that there are lots of similarities. There are also lots of differences. And in both cases, the injury is complex. It is not just a small focal point. Lots and lots of changes are taking place that are very widely distributed throughout the entire nervous system, to be honest. Now, when we think about treatment, there are so many places to possibly intervene in this cascade that you've talked about. What's been tried? Well, my goodness, there have been hundreds of compounds. If you take stroke into consideration as well as traumatic brain injury, the pharmaceutical industry for years and years and years has, has invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into agents that are antioxidant agents, that are uh, neurotransmitter stimulators, that are antagonists of neurotransmitters, because certain types of neurotransmitters, if there are high levels of it, uh, can produce uh, post-traumatic epilepsy, uh, seizures, and subsequent breakdown of tissue due to excitotoxicity. So you produce an antagonist to neurotransmitters that slow down their release. Uh, others uh, are, are designed to stimulate uh, inhibitory neurotransmitters. So there's been a whole host of agents, those that, uh, that are supposedly affect intracellular metabolism that, that are designed to modify the metabolism of mitochondria directly in the cell. There's been all of these different classes of drugs over the course of uh, many, many years of investigation that have been tried and that seem to work well in animal models, but when they get to clinical trial for one reason or another, they all fail. So far, the neuroprotective agents have been a bust, it sounds like. It's been a bust. I guess you'd have to say that if you're saying what has been successful in clinical trial. It's true. I think part of the reason uh, that it's been a bust is that people look, because of the uh, proprietary concerns, look for a molecule that affects a very, very specific pathway. And I think one of the reasons that uh, a lot of these agents do fail is because they're not recognizant of the fact that brain injury is a, is a system-wide phenomenon, so that uh, a drug that's going to be administered systemically, if it's to be effective in, in providing neuroprotection and blocking all this incredible cascade of uh, nasty events that are occurring, really has to act at a number of different sites, at a number of different levels of the organism, not just at the, at the brain. I just read a paper the other day that a, a relatively circumscribed brain injury produces a very, very substantial increase in inflammatory factors in the gut and affects the whole uh, digestive metabolism. So, you know, you've got to think not just of the, I'm going to fix, uh, let me just say my opinion, if that's okay. You're not just going to fix the frontal cortex or the, the hippocampus or the amygdala. You have to f really address your concerns to fixing the organism, to fixing the person, if that makes any sense to you. Makes sense. Now, is there something that can be done to stimulate regeneration of brain tissue? Well, you know, there are lots of preclinical studies done on this. This is a question that 
that certainly requires a tremendous amount of attention. In order to stimulate regeneration, the first thing you want to do is stop all the toxic products that, that are occurring. So if you're trying to stimulate a vulnerable nerve cell to regenerate or even to, to, to increase neurogenesis in the adult brain, which we know can occur, you want to make sure that you're not doing this in an environment filled with toxic sludge because that's basically going to kill any, any uh, it's going to abort any uh, regenerative attempts. One of the big thrusts of research now, which you all know about and all your uh, listeners will know about, is the work with stem cells, which promises, which, which holds out great promise to stimulate the development of new cells to help uh, put in cells that can then form new connections with the host brain and develop reciprocal connections that might be beneficial. I have to say that to date, most of those studies have been problematic or uh, somewhat disappointing, but I think the research clearly still needs to be done. There are lots of attempts in addition, looking at pharmacotherapeutic agents that supposedly will stimulate regeneration and repair. But again, once they get to clinical trial, they, they, they seem to uh, come with a lot of side baggage that causes so many problems that they, it can't be used successfully in patients or it just doesn't work. One of the other possibilities, of course, would be to look at neuroplasticity therapies. Where are we with that? Well, I think that's, that's a certainly a, a, another really strong area of research that needs to be developed, and that's why I, I, I send my kudos to the people in, in physical rehabilitation and, and therapy. There's a lot we now know that proper manipulation of the environment, some people would call it environmental enrichment for want of a better term, but those types of, of physical therapies clearly can stimulate nerve cells to uh, sustain themselves that would ordinarily die, to, to form new synaptic and dendritic connections and that can lead to uh, substantially promising outcomes. There's been a whole trial uh, going on across the country that has actually started at the University of Alabama and at Emory University. Dr. Steve Wolf, who I know here was one of those uh, uh, early investigators in restraint-induced therapy where you take people with stroke uh, and uh, basically restrain, if they have a good arm, for example, you restrain the use of that and force them to use the impaired limb, and they can learn to do that. And, and those results are sustained, and they just come off a national multicenter trial demonstrating that that can be a promising approach. And there are many other uh, computer-generated approaches that are being tried these days to basically work through, I guess, sensory stimulation, sensory sub substitution, and environmental enrichment to enhance the probabilities that people who have suffered a brain injury and are being treated long after that injury has passed can begin to show under the right conditions uh, substantial improvements. It's still a long way to go with all that, and whether or not that can be enhanced with various drugs and other types of pharmacological treatments uh, is still an open question, but it's very promising. Well, Dr. Stein, if you were king of the world, or at least king of the NIH, where would you put the money? That's a great question, and I can't win on that. <laughs> Whatever I say, there's going to be somebody who's going to, you're going to make angry with me because of that question. I wouldn't just deny one or the other, but I think clearly uh, the area of neuroprotection is where you need to start because you have to really stop those toxic products. Realistically, the more nervous tissue, whether it's in the brain or spinal cord or peripheral nervous system, the more nervous tissue you can spare or rescue after an insult due to stroke or trauma, whatever, the more nervous tissue you can spare, the better off you're going to be. If you have to have uh, regenerative responses, the less effort that has to go into producing that regenerative repair, the easier it's going to be to form those new connections if the in injury isn't widespread. And if you're getting this toxic wave of bad stuff permeating through the brain, that's not going to be very helpful to regeneration. It's going to block those processes because it's going to be killing a lot more nerve cells. So if I had to say it, if you really forced me to, I'd say 
let's at this stage do everything we can to enhance neuroprotection in the early stages of the injury process to provide for a much better matrix later on for all these other types of regenerative uh, treatments, be they environmental training or other types of pharmacological agents. Well, and that certainly makes sense. Start at the beginning of the cascade and instead of having to deal with the muck at the end. Well, that's what I would think. And again, I know that there are people who are probably going to uh, take issue with what I've said, but you asked me what I would do, and so <laughs> that's where I'd put my marbles. Well, let us know when, when you become king of the NIH, okay? I don't think that's likely to happen anytime <laughs> soon, Leslie. <laughs> well, you've done some pretty amazing things in your career. I wouldn't put it past you. Well, thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for being on the show. We've been discussing the therapy of brain injury with Dr. Donald Stein. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to a special series on the future of medicine on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 